growing up, my mom and I uh, loved dogs. How many dog lovers do we have in here? All right. And how about cat lovers? Okay, so it's about 50-50. 8-15 was all dog lovers, so I was really connecting with them. But for those of you who are cat lovers, bear with me for a moment here. But uh, my mom, uh, after I graduated from high school, um, she continued to love dogs, and uh, I come from a divorced family. And so my mom, after my brother and I moved off to college, uh, found a website where you could foster dogs. Now, for a dog lover, uh, that website brings a lot of compassion, and each one of these dogs, what they do is you get a picture of the dog, the name of the dog, and a description of that dog, and then at the bottom of that description is a disclaimer that says, if this dog isn't fostered in the next two weeks, it's going to die. Yeah, talk about compassion if you are a dog lover uh, on this website. And so, there's a dog named Sophie on there who's a little chihuahua, long-haired, fine-haired, uh, who is anxious because it was dropped off in the streets and they rescued it off the streets. And so, it has some emotional needs that uh, a human needs to come and care for. And so, my mom, full of compassion, fosters this dog and rescues this dog. Then a couple months later, she's on this website again, and there's a little dog named Baby Girl uh, who is black, who looks like a little wiener dog, but uh, isn't a wiener dog because it's got so many different mixes in there. And it's got this massive underbite, so the bottom teeth are always sticking out, makes it look like it's always mad and ticked off. Uh, and so she decides that she's going to foster that one too. Uh, a couple months after that, there's a dog named Gunner on there, and it's a miniature Doberman Pinscher, and it can jump four or five feet high, and it's got this picture of this person letting it jump up and take this treat out of its hands. And this dog is full of energy and loves to be around families and kids, so my mom, full of compassion, fosters that dog too. After my brother and I get wind of this, we have an intervention uh, that says, no more animals are going to be fostered in this household. You are forbidden as, as my mom to ever go on that website again. So fortunately, she pawned some of those dogs off on some different family members, and so now she only has two dogs there. But each one of these dogs needed a rescue story. They were on death row, and they needed somebody to rescue them. And we love, as Americans, rescue stories. If a firefighter, we see a video of it, rescues some kids out of a burning building, we cheer and we're full of excitement. If a police officer, where there's a hostage situation, diffuses that situation to where the hostages are released uh, and they've been rescued out of that situation, we cheer and we're excited. The reality of our passage this morning is that all of us were born with a disease that causes death. Psalm 51 goes on to say that in my mother's womb, I inherited this disease, and their mother inherited this disease, and their mother inherited this disease, until we get all the way back to the beginning of time with Adam and Eve. This disease kills more people than heart disease, uh, diabetes, uh, thinking of the other ones, blanking on them. Okay, heart disease, lung, cancer, thank you, uh, <laughs> heart disease, lung disease, all of these things all combine because every single one of us are infected with this disease, and there's only one man who could rescue us from this disease, and we're going to find out about that this morning. So let's look in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. In chapters one, 2, 1 through 3, we learn about uh, our past condition, how we were dead in our sins, 
verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins. This idea of dead is talking about a spiritual death where we're separated from God, our souls are disconnected from him. We are found in isolation. Romans 6, 23 says this, that the wages of sin is death. That when we sin, the wages that we earn from that is death in and of itself. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, turn a few pages to your right, says this, they are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. There was no light bulb that was going to come on into our brains because we were in darkness. We had no understanding of it. It says that we were alienated away from God. We were in isolation away from him, and it was all caused because of the hardness of our hearts. The reality of what death and sin have caused in our lives is that spiritual death continues to control our lives. That it was the controlling factor in your life and my life. And the consequences of our sin left us with no relationship with God and a distorted relationships with other people. Sin left us powerless to change. There was nothing you and I could do to change our reality and our state. And uh, sin and death pulled us into destruction and there was nothing that we could possibly do to pull ourselves out. Happy news, I know. Uh, but there's three influences that feed our dead state, according to verses 2 and 3. There's three influences. The first one is the world. It says this, in which you once walked. So how did you live your life? How did you exercise your life? You lived following the course of this world. I lived following the course of this world. The course of this world, talking about a, a world system that is opposed to the purposes of God, a world system that is opposed to the values of who God is, and it was a course towards de destruction. A couple years ago, I was flying to Miami, Florida for my brother's wedding, uh, who lives over there. And when we were flying, uh, we got over around towards Miami, and they just had a, a thunder and lightning storm, and so the plane wasn't able to land. And so we were just circling, the pilot said, around the Miami airport area. And after about 15 minutes, I remember pulling up my wind window and looking out the window, and I could count 10 or so planes outside my window. Now, when you are in the air, you love to be very, very far away from those things, but we were on a course that we had to trust that air traffic control and the pilot were going to keep us on that course, otherwise we would be in a life of destruction in very quick moments. And there was nothing I could do as a passenger to change the course of that plane. I had to trust the pilot and I had to trust the air traffic control that they were doing that. That's like our state because of being dead in our sins and living in light of the world system that has been corrupted by sin is there was nothing you or I could do to get out of this world system that was full of sin. The second one is the enemy. The enemy, verse 2 says, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So the enemy was also influencing our dead spiritual state. When he says this idea of air, it's the place where the evil spirit would begin to dwell and live in light of. John chapter 16, verse 11, Jesus calls Satan the ruler of this world. This is the place where Satan dwells and runs and rules and we follow and we are guided and directed. Satan is understood here to be the leader of an evil army. 
working overtime to try and put blinders upon the people that God has created. There, he, Satan and his army are working more overtime than a tax accountant is during tax season to put blinders over your eyes and my eyes. Because he does not want us to see the purposes of God, the plan of God, or meet God in and of himself. A couple years ago, uh, my son turned two, and at two, you can turn their car seat around from when they were facing backwards to forward. And the first time we did that, we were leaving our house after we changed our, his car seat around, and all of a sudden, he's like, Dad, what's that building? Dad, what's that sign? Dad, what's that red light? Dad, why are those cars coming at us? Dad, watch out for those cars. Because he could see everything around him. Because of our sinful dead state, we are like my son, face backwards, driving down the road, and we can't see anything but the car seat in front of us, and we're blinded from the surrounding environment around us. And this was the state that you and I were in. We were influenced by the world. We were influenced by the enemy. But then number three, we were influenced by the flesh. Verse three, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The third influence in our life is our flesh. This, this unnerving desire that we have in our heart that pulls us into it, this desire where we willfully, skillfully seek it out to diligently chase after our desire to serve our flesh. Galatians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, if you turn to your left in your Bible, gives us a description of one of the ways that the flesh is at work in your life, in my life, when we were dead in our sinful state. Verse 2 of chapter 3 in Galatians, let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's basically saying a works-based theology that says you can earn your way to God and earn God's favor, he says, is foolishness. If you think that you can just be a moral, good person, you will not earn favor with God. If you think that you can just practice repentance and prayer and become holy and that will earn you favor with God, it's foolishness. If you think that you can disconnect from reality and you can try and find your inner peace in and of yourself and that will earn you favor with God, Paul says that is foolishness. And so that is a work of the flesh. Turn with me one page over in your Bible to Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. For the desire of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desire of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are this, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. You want to try and earn favor from God? You had to do none of these, even in your thoughts or intentions of your life. And that's how you're going to earn favor with God. The disappointing reality is that none of us were able to abstain from any of this. And chances are, 
Many of us in this room have at least one, if not two or three or four in us because we are living in a world that finds our identity in our feelings, not in our character. We are, we're encouraged to live off of the impulses that we desire and don't worry about what other people are going to think or don't worry about how tomorrow or the next week is how that's going to affect you because that's what the world system is calling you and I to live by, to live according to the flesh. And what does he say about these influences of how, what they did to our dead, sinful state? He says we were under by nature, children of wrath. We were living under God's wrath. We are backed into a corner, listing off of all these things that the flesh has listed off, and we are feeling condemned, we're feeling guilty. Different scenarios are running through our brains at this point. We're questioning what goes on? How are we going to deal with this? And the beauty of this is, is it doesn't end there. Because in verses 4 through 7, we see that God saved us. He saved us out of our dead state and moved us into a relationship with him. Verse 4 says this, but God. But God. But God. Okay, in our culture today, but has a lot of negative connotations with it. Chances are if you are an employee somewhere or you have to meet with your supervisor or your boss at this quarter of the year, you probably had an employee review. And in that employee review, they said, this is what you're doing really well. You're doing a really good job here. You're actually killing it in this area, but there's some things you need to work on. Okay? Or let's say you're... Uh, single and you're looking to get into a dating relationship, and so you've been kind of hanging out with this person, maybe had some text conversations back and forth, and because Valentine's Day just came around, you got some courage there to go ask them out and to, you know, flatter them with some uh, flowery words and, and full of affection, and all of a sudden they say to you, well, you're a nice guy, but I just want to be friends. You just got friended. You just got put in the friend zone. The word but in our culture today has a lot of negative connotations like an employee review or you just got friended. The difference here, though, is it goes from we are in a bad state, but God. We were dominated by the world system, but God. We served the ruler of this world, the enemy, but God. We were living in our flesh, but God intervened. And what this begins to do is to display how great our God is, because there's a drastic contrast in verses 1 through 3 to 4 through 10. We see this contrast, where we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God made us alive in Christ. We were living in our sin, but God made us living in God's good works. We were uh, slaves of this world, but now we, because of God, we live in heavenly places. We were born into our sin nature, but God made us union with Christ. We were living under the wrath of God, but God brought his mercy. Uh, we were living in a works-based theology, but God saved us by his grace. That's what but God means. That moves us from a terrible situation into an amazing awestruck transition into focusing in on who our great God is. 
And when he unpacks this, he's going to give us four characteristics of his motives for why he saved you and I. And each one of these motives are a description of a characteristic that he possesses because of his great care for you and for me. The first motive for him saving us is seen in verse 4, his mercy. But God being rich in mercy. If you're not familiar with what mercy is, it's God not giving you or I what we deserve. Maybe you remember growing up as a kid and playing this game where you would interlock fingers and you would see who had the strongest forearm or who had the strongest wrist and you would go back and forth, back and forth until all of a sudden one of your wrists begins to bend back and you go, mercy, 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 and they were to give you what you didn't deserve. Or if you've watched a UFC fight recently and they've got this person pinned and they tap out and they hit the ground as a sign that they're asking for this guy to give them mercy before a bone snaps or before a uh, leg or arm is disconnected. That's mercy. (laughs) Mercy. (laughs) Dislocated, not disconnected. That would be a lot worse. (laughs) I had to figure out what I just said there. Okay. Disconnected, that would be far worse. Wow. Okay, getting back on track. Getting back on track. God does not give us what he deserves. Let's see a description of God's mercy. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 34. As you're turning there, the backstory here is that Israel has been enslaved for 400 years. And under the enslavement of Pharaoh, and God raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And over and over and over again, Pharaoh refuses. And at the end of each ask, Pharaoh is hit with another plague that brings his country more and more into ruin. A sign of God's power and a sign of how hard Pharaoh's heart was. And then finally, after the tenth one that cost Pharaoh his son, God Uh, leads Moses and the nation of Israel out of Egypt to the sea borders of the Red Sea and parts the Red Sea as the Egyptians are barreling down trying to come back out and capture them. And he says that they pass through the Red Sea on dry land. Now, after it rains, the ground is not dry, it's wet. This morning, I stepped in a mud puddle on my way to work. When you part a Red Sea, when you part an ocean... It should be full of wet dirt, and yet it's dry. Again, another miraculous sign of God's power. And they head off, the seas come back in, they destroy the nation of Egypt, the Egyptians, and they get to the bottom of Mount Sinai where God sets up his government with Moses, and Moses goes up to the mountain, and while he's up there, they take all their gold and all their possessions, and they begin to build a golden calf and say, this is the God who delivered us out of the Egyptians' hands. This is the God who parted the Red Sea. Not Israel's God, not the God who actually did that. They begin to worship this image. And God judges them and God disciplines them according to that. But in verse 6 of Exodus chapter 34, it says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God didn't have to do that. God could have wiped out the nation of Israel and started all over with just Moses and his family. But God gave Israel what they did not deserve by showing them that he was full of mercy. Turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 2. 
where it gives another description of God's mercy. It says, being rich in mercy. God had a wealth of his mercy that was available to Israel, that is available to you, and that was available to me. He was not poor in mercy, he was rich in mercy. Meaning that he had more mercy than Bill Gates had Benjamins and he was shelling it out day after day after day after day for you and for me, even though we did not deserve it. And if you look back at Galatians chapter 5 and you look at the works of the flesh and you go, but you don't know how many withdrawals of God's mercy I just made over this last week because a lot of these things are marked in my life. Guess what the Old Testament tells us? His mercies are new every single morning. Means all that wealth that you just deteriorated, he just filled it back up every single day. That is God's mercy. Now, who is he offering mercy to? Somebody who's serving a world system that disagrees with how his government he desires to be. It's serving an enemy who is opposed to the purposes of God. And it's people that are living according to the flesh rather than the living according to the purposes of God. I don't know about you, but that would be a bad investment for my mercy. If you were to sit down with a financial advisor and this was finances, they would say your ROI would be negative. But that's the mercy that God had for you and I. He offered it for you because the return on the investment meant that he could have a relationship with you and I. That is the first motive and characteristic of our God. Second one, uh, his love. He loved us. Verse 4. Because of the great love with which he loved us. God's love sought your good and my good and put everything else aside to pursue after and to chase after a relationship with you and with me. That is who our God is. Did we deserve it? By no means. Did we earn it? No way. But God pursued after us and even though we did not deserve it. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, or Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, Moses is talking to the next generation. They're on the outskirts of the promised land that he had promised to them. And he's talking about transferring his faith to this next generation. And he says this about the nation of Israel. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the people who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to his fathers that the Lord has brought you out of a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Why did God love them? It wasn't because of how great their country was or how great their people was. It wasn't because they had a great big army or they had a lot of prestige that would be attractive to God. It's because God was faithful to the promise that he made to Abraham, their great father. And so he was faithful to display this type of love. John 3.16 tells us this, that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Romans 5.8 says that... uh, God loved us so much that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I don't know about you, but when I look at verses 1, 2, and 3, somebody who's serving the world, the flesh, and the enemy, 
There is no way I'm going to offer up my child who I love tremendously as a parent for that type of person. And you better be grateful that I'm not God and he is. And I think you would probably be in that same boat. And yet, that's the type of love that he sends for you and I. It's a love that pursues after us. It's a love that goes after us even though we don't deserve it. And that is an unfathomable, uncomprehendable type of love that God has for you and I. The third characteristic of who he is is his grace. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in coming ages, he might show his immeasurable riches of his grace. Paul here is writing these words, and he's so overwhelmed by this excitement of who God is that he blurts out and interrupts his thoughts by saying, by grace you've been saved. Church, by grace you have been saved. Ian, by grace you have been saved. And he just has to interrupt this thought. And what grace is, if you're not familiar, it's unearned favor from God. You didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it, but God granted us his grace, and we earned favor with God by accepting it. And the beauty of this, which is unfathomable to me, is he wanted nothing in return. He wanted nothing in return, and that is God's grace. God's grace does three things that he tells us about in here. The first one is, is he makes us alive. We go from being dead to alive. We were spiritually dead, verse 1 tells us, and now God's grace brings us into this new life. We were laying on the gurney of life, dead, and through Jesus' sacrifice, he hits us with the AED, and our heart begins to pump, and we have life again. That's because of God's grace for you. That's because of God's grace for me. The second thing that his grace does for us is he says this, he raised us up with him. Like, not only was Jesus raised from the grave, but he raised us up with him. That we go from being not only dead to alive, but now we go from being enemies of God to being made at peace with God. Because before Jesus' sacrifice, there was a tension between sinful humanity and a holy God, and there was a chasm in between that man and his works could never be able to fulfill. And it was only through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that that tension was uh, brought into peace, and that chasm was bridged through the gap so that we can be at peace with God. That's because of God's grace in your life and mine. But the third thing he says here, he says he seated us. Verse 5, he seated us, or 6, he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He exalted us. Where is Jesus at? He's sitting on the right hand of the Father, in the heavenly places. Where are we going to be seated? Right next to him. This is a position to be seated in the heavenly places was a position of privilege. It's a position of honor. It's a position of great responsibility to be seated right next to the son of God who's paid it all for you and for me. Despite what you think about the President of the United States right now, we all can agree that the position in the White House, in the Oval Office, is an honorable, is a privilege, and of one of great responsibility. Very few people ever get to sit in the chair of the Oval Office, in the White House. And Jesus says, you don't, are just not a pawn in my kingdom you are now exalted sitting in the Oval Office 
of the heavenly places. What great honor that is that God's grace has given us. What great privilege that's given us, but also what great responsibility we have. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. So this is what God's grace did for you and I. Let's look at the fourth characteristic that God's character is and the motive for why he saved you and I. It says, in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. What's his fourth characteristic? It's his kindness. It's the disposition he has towards you and I. It's how he packages up his grace and how he delivers it to us. He could have been mad. He could have been judgmental. He could have been completely in his righteousness, judged us and condemned us, but he packaged his grace and delivered it in a kind, loving-hearted way. It shows God's temperament towards humanity. In honor of President's Day, I came across this story of Abraham Lincoln and his kindness that I feel like is very fitting. Despite his busy schedule during the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln often visited the hospitals to cheer the wounded. On one occasion, he saw a young fellow who was near death. Is there anything I can do for you? Asked the compassionate president. Please write a letter to my mother, came the reply. Unrecognized by the soldier, the chief executive sat down and wrote as the youth told him what to say. The letter read, My dearest mother, I was badly hurt while doing my duty, and I won't recover. Don't sorrow too much for me. May God bless you and Father. Kiss Mary and John for me. The young man was too weak to go on, so Lincoln signed the letter for him and then added this postscript, written for your son by Abraham Lincoln. Asking to see the note, the soldier was astonished to discover who had showed him such kindness. Are you really our president? He asked, yes, with a quiet answer. Now, is there anything else I can do? The lad feebly replied, will you please hold my hand? I think it would help to see me through to the end. The tall man granted his request, offering warm words of encouragement until death stole him into the dawn. That was Abraham Lincoln's kindness towards this soldier who fought for our freedom. He sat with him, right next to him, holding his hands, taking his last wish and writing it to his mom. The difference between us and that soldier is we were already dead. And God comes and grabs our hand and in kindness offers us his grace and says, this is not just your last wish this is your first wish. Here's new life. That's the beauty of God's kindness. And that is who our great God is. God saved us by his love, by his grace, by his kindness. All of these are examples of God's love. So how did he save us? How did he do this? Verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God. How are you saved? How am I saved? It's by grace. It's God giving us what we could never earn. And it's in those ways that we find salvation. C.S. Lewis uh, was on his way at one point in his life. And what he was doing was he was going to go meet with a bunch of other religious leaders from different religions. They were going to talk about how their religion was separated from every other one. Well, he was running late one day, so they got started. 
And one guy shares about how he thinks you could be a good person and you could earn favor with God that way. Another person starts talking about how repentance and holiness and sacrifice will earn you favor with God. Another person talks about how you could disconnect from reality and find inner peace in and of yourself and you earn favor with God there. Well, C.S. Lewis running late is it frantic and begins to swing open the door and they say, C.S. Lewis, what do you think? And he says, what separates Christianity from every other religion is grace. Every other religion is works-based. You have to earn favor with God. God earned his favor with you by giving you and I his grace. That's the difference that you and I have by serving this great God we have. Here's the role that we have in this, okay? But here's what he says. How are we saved? You've been saved by grace through faith. Through faith is how you and I have this role to play in your salvation of mine. And you may be here and you go, well, Ian, I'm not a person of faith. I'm not a man or a woman of faith. And I would say, no matter how self-reliant you think you really are, every single one of us are people of faith. It's just, what do we place our faith in? What do I mean by that? Chances are, you have faith that the water you drink and the food that you eat is free of contamination, is pure. You have faith that you can trust that our water systems, eWeb, Rainbow Water, Sub, whatever yours is on that they are going to keep your water clean, and that you have faith that the food you buy from the grocery store has been filtered through, and they've held that farmer accountable, and that it's going to be free from contamination. Or you have faith that when you drive over a bridge, whether it's uh, 126 or over Beltline or a different one, that you have faith that the engineer who designed it and the construction team who built it, built it in a way that's going to support you and your car. You have faith that when you deposit your paycheck into the bank, that that bank teller and that bank manager and the bank that they represent is going to keep your money safe. So why is it so hard for us to have faith in the creator of our soul? Why is it so hard for us to have faith in the one who created our soul and intervened in our deadness to make you and I alive? All we have to do is place our faith and our trust and our belief in him. And what does he say next? He says, this is not of works. It's not your own doing. It's a gift of God. Do you know what the difference between a wage and a gift is? We earned death by the wages of our sin, our first verse learned about. Here it says that we did nothing to earn favor with God. It was God's grace. We respond in faith, and it's through that that we have salvation. That's the difference between a wage and a gift, is it's something that you and I did not earn. It was something that was freely given for you and I. It's not a uh, result of works, so no one may boast. We have no opportunity to boast. We just watched the Super Bowl a couple weeks ago. Imagine the MVP stands up there with the trophy, and he's got the trophy, right? He's the MVP of the National Football League. But imagine somebody on the practice squad who just goes out there to get hit, stands up there and holds this trophy and talks about how much he's earned this trophy because he knows how to put on his pads and he knows how to take a hit or two. We would say, that's ridiculous. He's not the MVP. He's not in the game. That's what it's like for you and I to boast when we did nothing to do to earn it. The MVP was the guy who earned it. We didn't do anything to earn it. The guy who's the MVP of our story is Jesus Christ, and so in him and him alone do you and I boast. 
That's why we sing the songs that we sing that are centered around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, because in Him and Him alone can you and I boast. It's the only reason we can boast. It's the only power that we have to boast in. It's the only reason that we have life in and of itself is because of the sacrifice that Jesus has made for you and I. But, it, but the boasting doesn't just end with the songs that we sing. How do we boast in God? It affects the way that we live our lives. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We should not walk according to the world standards. Verse 1 tells us we should walk, we should live our lives with good works in mind because we are his workmanship, we are his masterpiece, we are the crown of his creation, the object of his eye, the Bible tells us, and he pursued after us and loved us, and so we were created to live with good works. What are good works, you may say? How do I live my life in response to the free gift of salvation that God has called me to? It starts with living out the characteristics that he listed before. If God was kind towards us, and that was the disposition that he had towards us and the temperament he had towards us, then our response to the people we come in contact with on a daily basis should be one that represents his kindness. If God pursued us in his love, even though we didn't deserve it, means that people that do not deserve it, we should pursue after them to display his love that he has given to you. We're going to be hurt. We are going to be sinned against. We're going to be wronged. And we have the choice to respond in anger or wrath, or we have the opportunity to grant mercy, which is the antidote to our anger that God has called us and modeled for us. God gave us his grace, and therefore we should be a grace-giving people. And we should be representations of that grace. And if we live in light of that, the gospel is far more attractive to a lost and dying world. People desire it. They see it's different. It's countercultural. We're not based upon our triggers or our uh, quick responses. We're based upon the characteristics of who God is. And there's areas where all of us fall short, and I am the chief of these areas. And we sometimes need to come to the tables of communion to request and repent before God and to ask God to begin to work these things in and through our lives for those of us who already have a relationship with him. If you don't have a relationship with him, then today's the day of salvation, that you are called to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. You didn't earn it, you don't deserve it, but God freely offers it to you and he's pursued after you and wants to give you his grace and you just have to believe in it. And I would ask you to believe in that message this morning. Let's pray.